0: Hello, and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar, and here we are, episode eight of this pandemic season of Hari Kuts. Uh It's, I can't believe it, it's been a full week now of daily readings. Um, uh, every day for the past eight days now, I have been reading uh, sections from one of my favorite essays by one of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace. It's called A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, and I began doing this really as, as, as a bit of a respite for myself, uh, but also in the hopes that for many of us who are <laughs> stuck uh, in quarantine, uh, we're, we're trying to get through this pandemic as, as best as we can with our sanity. Um, I thought I'd offer this, this essay as a way of taking us away uh, and really immersing ourselves in a world um, from the 90s that seems so far away now. Right. And especially the world of cruise ships, um, the premise was always here that you know as much as we don't like being stuck inside, uh, we uh, I guarantee none of us wants to be on a cruise ship right now. We've known for a while that cruise ships are terrible, and this pandemic, in many ways, uh, some of the early news that made this pandemic rise to our our awareness is, uh, you know, the the, the stories of uh, people on cruise ships getting sick with uh, with coronavirus with very, very tragic uh, uh, consequences. So but the whole idea was to get away from this this uh, the, the terrible news and to go on this cruise with David Foster Wallace and to see him actually rant about uh, cruises and for to see him kind of take apart cruise culture uh, and and uh, so that we understand even more, Uh, just how terrible cruises are. Um, So that's the premise. Let's keep going with this. Uh, Last time, uh, we finally actually got to embark with David Foster Wallace and set sail. And we promptly ran into the first two days of the cruise being (laughs) days of bad weather (laughs) with rain, wind, uh, heavy seas, pitching and rolling, seasickness, um, but surprising moments of of, uh, joy with... Uh, his his new table companions and the forming of the anti Mona alliance. So, what will David Foster Wallace be facing in today's section? What's he going to, is this bad weather ever going to let up? And what's he going to be like once it actually, you know, once the sun comes out? Let's find out. Without further ado, let's get into section eight of A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace from 1996. <laughs> Did I mention that famous writer and Iowa Writer's Workshop chairperson, Frank Conroy, has his own experiential essay about cruising right there in Celebrity's 7 & C brochure? Footnote 35. Conroy took the same luxury cruise as I, the seven-night Western Caribbean, on the good old native in May 1994. He and his family cruised for free, though. I know details like this because Conroy talked to me on the phone and answered nosy questions and was frank and forthcoming and in general just totally decent-seeming about the whole thing. Well, so anyway, he does have an experiential essay about cruising in the brochure and the thing starts out on the Pier 21 gangway that first Saturday with his family. Excerpt. Hurry note. I'm going to read Frank Conroy's essay excerpts here in a slightly different voice than the one that I'm using for David Foster Wallace. With that single easy step, we entered a new world, a sort of alternate reality to the one on shore. Smiles, handshakes, and we were whisked away to our cabin by a friendly young woman from guest relations. Then... They're outside, along the rail, for the nader's sailing. We became aware that the ship was pulling away. We had felt no warning, no trembling of the deck, throbbing of the engines or the like. It was as if the land were magically receding, like some ever-so-slow reverse zoom in the movies. This is pretty much what Conroy's whole My Celebrity Cruise or All This and a Tan too is the title of the essay. This is pretty much what his whole essay is like. Its full implications didn't hit me until I read it, supine, on deck 12, the first sunny day. Conroy's essay is graceful and lapidary and attractive and assuasive. I submit that it is also completely sinister and despair-producing, and bad. Its badness does not consist so much in its constant and mesmeric references to fantasy and alternate realities and the palliative powers of pro-pampering, like these excerpts. I had come on board after two months of intense and moderately stressful work, but now it seemed a distant memory. Or I realized It had been a week since I had washed a dish, cooked a meal, gone to the market, done an errand, or, in fact, anything at all, requiring a minimum of thought and effort. My toughest decisions had been whether to catch the afternoon showing of Mrs. Doubtfire or play bingo. Um, Its badness does not come in, not so much in that, nor in the surfeit of happy adjectives nor so much in the tone of breathless approval throughout, like in these excerpts. For all of us, our fantasies and expectations were to be exceeded, to say the least. Or, when it comes to service, celebrity cruises seems ready and able to deal with anything. Or, bright sun, warm still air, the brilliant blue-green of the Caribbean under the vast lapis-lazuli dome of the sky. Or, the training must be rigorous indeed, because the truth is, the service was impeccable, and impeccable in every aspect, from the cabin steward to the sommelier, from the on-deck waiter to the guest relations manager, from the ordinary seaman who goes out of his way to get your deck chair, to the third mate, Who shows you the way to the library. It is hard to imagine a more professional, polished operation, and I doubt that many in the world can equal it." No, its badness doesn't consist in in any of those characteristics. Rather, part of the essay's real badness can be found in the way it reveals once again the mega-line's sale-to-sale agenda of micromanaging not only one's perceptions of a 7NC luxury cruise, but even one's own interpretation and articulation of those perceptions. In other words, celebrities, PR people, go and get one of the USA's most respected writers to pre-articulate and pre-endorse the 7 C experience and to do it with a professional eloquence an authority that few lay perceivers and articulators could hope to equal. Footnote 36. For example, after reading Conroy's essay on board, whenever I'd look up at the sky, it wouldn't be the sky I was seeing. It was the vast lapis lazuli dome of the sky. But the really major badness is that the project and placement of My Celebrity Cruise are sneaky and duplicitous and far beyond whatever eroded pales still exist in terms of literary ethics. Conroy's quote-unquote essay appears as an insert on skinnier pages and with different margins from the rest of the brochure, creating the impression that it has been excerpted from some large and objective thing Conroy wrote. But it it hasn't been. The truth is that Celebrity Cruises paid Frank Conroy up front to write it. Footnote 37 Pier 21, having seasoned me as a recipient of explanatory and justificatory narratives, I was able to make some serious journalistic phone inquiries about how Professor Conroy's essay Marshall came to be, yielding two separate narratives. Narrative number one, from Celebrity Cruise's PR liaison, Miss Wieson, after a two-day silence that I've come to understand as the PR equivalent of covering the microphone with your hand and leaning over to confer with legal counsel, she said this, quote, Oh, Celebrity saw an article he wrote in Travel and Leisure magazine, and they were really impressed with how he could create these mental postcards. So they went to ask him to write about his cruise experience for people who had never been on a cruise before. And they did pay him to write the article, and and they really took a gamble, really, because he had never been on a cruise before, and they had to pay him, whether he liked it or not. And whether they liked the article or not, but dry little chuckle. <laughs> Obviously, they liked the article, and he did a good job. So that's the Mr. Conroy story, and those are his perspectives on his experience. Unquote. But narrative number two, from Frank Conroy himself, with a small sigh that precedes a certain kind of weary candor. Quote, I prostituted myself. Unquote. Back to the essay. The truth is that Celebrity Cruises paid Frank-, Frank Conroy up front to write it, even though nowhere in or around the essay is there anything acknowledging that it's a paid endorsement. Not even one of the little tiny font "so and so has been compensated for his services" that flashes at your TV screen's lower right during celebrity-hosted infomercials. Instead, inset on this weird essay first page is an author photo is shot of Conroy brooding in a black turtleneck. And below the photo is an author bio with a list of Conroy's books that includes the 1967 classic Stop Time, which is arguably the best literary memoir of the 20th century, and is one of the books that first made poor old yours truly want to try to be a writer. In other words, Celebrity Cruises is presenting Conroy's review of his 7NC cruise as an essay and not a commercial. This is extremely bad. Here is the argument for why it's bad, whether it honors them well or not, an essay's fundamental obligations are supposed to be to the reader. The reader, on however unconscious a level, understands this, and thus tends to approach an essay with a relatively high level of openness and credulity. But a commercial is a very different animal. Advertisements have certain formal legal obligations to truthfulness, but these are broad enough to allow for a great deal of rhetorical maneuvering in the fulfillment of an advertisement's primary obligation, which is to serve the financial interests of its sponsor. Whatever attempts an advertisement makes to interest and appeal to its readers are not, finally, for the reader's benefit. And the reader of an ad knows all this too, that an ad's appeal is by its very nature calculated. And this is part of why our state of receptivity is different, more guarded, when we get ready to read an ad. Footnote 38 This is the reason why even a really beautiful, ingenious, powerful ad, of which there are a lot, can never be any kind of real art. An ad has no status as gift, i.e. it's never really for the person it's directed at. In the case of Frank Conroy's essay, quote-unquote, Celebrity Cruises, with the act of complicity of Professor Conroy, I'm afraid, is trying to position an ad in such a way that we come to it with a lowered guard and leading chin we properly reserve for coming to an essay for something that is art, or that is at least trying to be art. An ad that pretends to be art is, at absolute best, like, like somebody who smiles warmly at you only because he wants something from you. This is dishonest. But what sinister is the cumulative effect that such dishonesty has on us, since it offers a perfect facsimile or simulacrum of goodwill without goodwill's real spirit, it it messes with our heads and eventually starts upping our defenses, even in cases of genuine smiles and real art and true goodwill. It makes us feel confused and lonely and impotent and angry and scared. It causes despair. Footnote 40 this is related to the phenomenon of the professional smile, a national pandemic in the service industry. And no place in my experience have I been on the receiving end of as many professional smiles as I am on the nader, Maitre d's, chief stewards, hotel managers, minions, cruise director, their PS's all come on like switches at my approach but also back on land, at banks, restaurants, airline ticket counters, on and on. You know this smile, the strenuous contraction of circumeral fascia with incomplete zygomatic involvement. The smile that doesn't quite reach the smiler's eye, and that signifies nothing more than a calculated attempt to advance the smiler's own interests by pretending to like the smiley. Why do employers and supervisors force professional service people to broadcast the professional smile? Am I the only consumer in whom high doses of such a smile produce despair? Am I the only person who is sure that the growing number of cases in which totally average-looking people suddenly open up with automatic weapons in shopping malls and insurance offices and medical complexes and McDonald's is, is somehow causally related to the fact that these venues are well-known dissemination loci of the professional smile? Who do they think is fooled by the professional smile? And yet, the professional smile's absence now also causes despair. Anybody who's ever bought a pack of gum in a Manhattan cigar store, or asked for something to be stamped fragile at a Chicago post office, or tried to obtain a glass of water from a South Boston waitress, knows well the soul-crushing effect of a service worker's scowl, i.e. the humiliation And resentment of being denied the professional smile. And the professional smile has by now skewed even my resentment at the dreaded professional scowl. I walk away from the Manhattan tobacconist, resenting not the counterman's character or absence of goodwill, but his lack of professionalism in denying me the smile. (sighs) What a fucking mess. Back to the essay. It causes despair. At any rate, for this particular 7NC consumer, Conroy's ad as essay ends up having a truthfulness about it that I'm quite sure is unintentional. As my week on the Nader wore on, I began to see this essay-mercial as a perfect, ironic reflection of the mass-market cruise experience itself. The essay is polished, powerful, impressive, clearly the best that money can buy. It presents itself as for my benefit. It manages my experiences and my interpretation of those experiences and takes care of them in advance for me. This essay, it seems to care about me But it doesn't, not really Because first and foremost, it wants something from me so does the cruise itself The pretty setting and glittering ship and dashing staff And sedulous servants and solicitous fund managers All want something from me and it's not just the price of my ticket. They've already got that. Just what it is they want is hard to pin down. But by early in the week, I can feel it in building. It circles the ship like a fin. Woof. <laughs> Oh, man, David Foster Wallace, just when we thought, okay, after two days of bad weather, he finally gets a sunny day. And and what does he do during that sunny day? He lays down in deck 12 and reads this essay in the celebrity brochure and has this extended philosophical rumination on the nature of truth and advertising and and despair. (laughs) So a few Hari notes here. Uh, First of all, this this I get the sense that he didn't realize until he's actually on the cruise, um, and he's sitting there reading this brochure with time to kill because of the bad weather. I get the feeling he didn't realize until then that this essay that's in the middle of the brochure is written by Frank Conroy. That and it turns out Frank Conroy is one of David Foster Wallace's, you know, uh, heroes, literary heroes. He says that this is this is the guy who's one of his books. Uh, you know, convinces David Foster Wallace to try to be a writer himself. And so I can kind of imagine David Foster Wallace sitting there reading this and, and feeling this sort of meta-level despair. On one hand, seeing something written by one of his literary heroes who has, you know, later on David Foster Wallace will find out, his literary hero will tell him, yeah, I prostituted myself. So I I can imagine that kind of sense of, you know, deep sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach as he's reading this in his deck chair. The sun is finally out, but it doesn't quite feel like it when he's reading his, his literary hero doing this. The other meta thing I imagine is it must hit him that, you know, just two years before this, his literary hero was also on that very, very same ship, on the very same assignment to try to write an essay about what cruising looks like. And it must be this moment for David Foster Wallace of like having to now uh, write something that's going to be better than what his literary hero wrote. So that's a that's a you know for me as a, as a writer and a storyteller that's 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 an interesting thing to to imagine uh, David Foster Wallace's plight. Um, the second harry note I have here is this this um, this riff he goes on about. The uh, the professional smile, and uh, uh, and he he calls it a national pandemic. Oh, I think after this year we cannot use the word pandemic as a metaphor <laughs> anymore. But but back in '96, it's interesting that he he's reflecting on this this idea of the professional smile and how pervasive it is. Um, uh, to the point where the absence of the smile makes him resent it even more, and he sums that up by saying, What a fucking mess. Um, and I'll come back to that that phrase in a second. Um, the third hardy note I have is this idea of uh, ads as art or not as art. And I'm sure that that people who work in advertising or marketing, Uh, will probably take a great deal of uh, umbrage at that or maybe they don't care. Uh, I think there are some people that will think about art and especially graphic designers uh, when they when they consider the the visual element of ads as art but his point here about the difference between essays and ads is that essays when he's saying essays are art he's saying that there's an idea that an essay's obligation is supposed to be to the reader and that an essay is trying to honor the reader as, you know, whether they do that well or not, that's supposed to be the intent anyway. Whereas an ad's obligation is only for the financial benefit of the ad's sponsor, and that we know when we see an ad or, or read an ad that there's something calculated about its superlatives, its, its ways of projecting its own brand identity. In this brings me to the last Hari note, which is that as I'm reading this, the, the thing that, that stands out for me is our own current situation where we have a, a, a so-called president here in the US who even my own former students would say to me, oh, you know, he's a great speaker. And it would make me recoil as a, as a professional speaker myself and as a teacher of speech. You know, I view speech as art and there's an obligation as a speaker um, to your audience, um, and this is slightly, you know, uh, uh, dispiriting for me um, to imagine that that people consider Trump to be a, a speaker. I don't consider him to be a speaker at all. A friend of mine recently asked me what my thoughts were about Trump's speeches. Um, you know, in his daily press briefings uh, these days. And my response is, those aren't speeches. Those are ads. This guy is a con man, and what he's doing, every single thing he ever says is an ad for himself. That's why I don't consider his speech to be speeches. His speech is primal advertising of himself, of his own brand. He is obligated to only his own financial sponsorship, not to anybody else. He doesn't owe, he doesn't feel like he owes anybody anything except his own financial, uh, you know, well-being. Um, and and but the the interesting thing for me is how David Foster Wallace describes why is this dangerous. After all, isn't that just the same as any politician? And I think that's one of the appeals of. Of uh, Trump for a lot of people is that it's it's such a cynical read. It's it's a way of thinking about about him as just any other politician, or actually comparing and and reducing other politicians to his level and, and saying that they're all in his kind of way con men and ad men. And what I find interesting is when David Foster Wallace says this is dishonest, but what's sinister is the cumulative effect that such dishonesty has on us. It offers a perfect facsimile or simulacrum of goodwill without goodwill's real spirit. And in doing so, it messes with our heads. It makes us feel confused and lonely and impotent and angry and scared. It causes despair. When Trump gets there in the guise of giving a press briefing, and in the context of a press briefing, it makes that a vehicle for propaganda and an ad for himself, the cumulative effect is that we then gradually begin to expect that all press briefings are going to be like that. It becomes normal. And then any other politician that tries to give an honest press briefing in the middle of a, of a global crisis, tries to actually provide facts, gets treated as if they're giving an ad presentation. And that makes all of us Confused and lonely and impotent and angry and scared and desperate at a time when (laughs) things already are confused and lonely and impotent and angry and and frightening and and despairing. (sighs) It's a bit of a downer to end on, but as dear Foster Wallace says himself, what a fucking mess. On that note, let's end here and let's look forward to what's going to happen in section nine tomorrow uh, as we continue cruising in the meantime i hope all of you stay safe stay home stay healthy and stay human thank you